The sermon text this morning is from the book of 1 Timothy, chapter 5, verses 17 through 25. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder, except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God, and of Christ Jesus, and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some men are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Last week I mentioned that I think it is a self-evident truth that the way you view someone is the way that you'll treat them. In other words, if you see somebody as significant, important, valuable, like a mother, a father, a mentor, you tend to value them, you tend to honor them, you tend to esteem them. If you view somebody not really as significant or important in your life, not having a key place, then you you tend to not value them as greatly. You don't tend to honor them. I think it's self-evident, and why I say that is because I think it's evident to ourselves. Right? I mean, we don't have to kind of prove this. We know this intuitively. If we we see them as significant, we're going to honor, esteem them. Now, you know, we've been going through this book of 1 Timothy, and we're knee-deep in the instructions to the church. So Paul is writing to Timothy uh, how the church ought to behave. He's giving us kind of like a manual for how we are to function as a church. Remember now, the church is the people of God, right? The outpost of glory. Kind of the witness to the world of God's great wisdom. So by the way we organize ourselves and live and relate to one another is to show the world the very wisdom of God. It seems incredible to me that God would decide to display himself through the brokenness of people that he gathers as the church, but he does. And so we're called to to display that wisdom of God. Now, we've already looked at the the preaching and the message of the gospel in chapter 1. He's given us instructions on how men and women come and worship in the church, how leadership is organized. And beginning in chapter 5, if you remember, he was giving instructions, how do we relate to one another? And remember back in those first two verses, he covered two struggles in the church, the generational differences and gender differences. Those are points of conflict for many churches. And yet he instructs us, we're to honor one another, right? Don't rebuke the older man, but encourage him. With all purity, approach the younger woman. Those are ways of honoring in terms of encouragement and treating one another with purity. So where the divisional lines often are in a church, generations or gender, no, we're to honor one another. And that's different from the way the world acts along those same generational and gender lines. But then he said with the widows, These women who were struggling in life with the loss of their husband, honor them, he says. Honor them with both respect and provision. Uh, We don't kick our wounded to the curb, but we're to care for them. And then in chapter 5, as Miriam just read, now he relates this to elders. How do we treat elders? How do we respond to elders? Chapter 6, and he says honor. In chapter 6, how do you respond to your earthly masters? We're going to find next week, you honor them too. In other words, there's a theme going from chapter 5, verse 1, all the way to chapter 6, verse 2, about how do we deal with one another, even in our imperfections, 
And that idea is honor all the way through. So in our passage today, we're going to look at three things in terms of how the membership relates to the eldership, and that would be honor those who rule well. And then second, and you'll see that in 17 and 18, in uh, 19 to 21, you're going to see to protect them and correct them when necessary. And then in three, and that is 22 to 25, you're going to see to exercise caution in appointing them. So first, look with me at 17 and 18. He says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. So he's speaking about the elders now. Now we've already talked about the elders in chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. Uh, in chapter 3, though, they were called overseers. Overseers. Here they're called elders. Um, we see these, you know, normally, well, we see elders and overseers and pastors. It's the same office. Same office. We generally use pastors for those in full-time vocational ministry. It's just kind of the way society calls men who are pastors. But elders and overseers and pastors are all the same office. You see them used interchangeably in Titus chapter 1, verses 5 and 7, in Acts chapter 20, verses 17 and 28. But we see them as the same. Now, why all the different names? Well, I think they describe various functions that they perform. Shepherds tend to lead and guard. Overseers tend to oversee and, and manage. And, and, um, and elders tend to exercise wisdom and give counsel. And in this church, we have lay elders. Lay elders are those who, who are not full-time vocational in ministry, uh, but they're leading eldership. We see pastors as equivalent to elders. Now, what we've done in this church is when we meet as an elder board, the elders and the pastors come together and they discuss the affairs of the church. We're not a voting church. We don't vote on things a lot. But what we do is decide by consensus. So at elder meetings, elders and pastors come together. They discuss an issue. Everybody's expected to weigh in. Uh, I see it as my role to try to build consensus out of the wisdom gained. So the church is led by elders. Now, you notice that he says these elders are worthy of double honor. What does this mean? Well, some want to think this is a ruling elder and a teaching elder. Most Presbyterians will divide elder boards in two, teaching elders and ruling elders. We don't see, <clears throat> we don't see there to be a distinction because in chapter 3, verse 2, all the elders are to be able to teach. Uh, this idea of double honor, though, I think refers to that the church is called to give double honor. That is, respect for the position, but also remuneration or compensation. Now, we'll talk about that in a minute. I want to first focus on elders who rule well. What's it mean when it says the elders are to rule? What are you to expect elders to be doing when they're ruling? Well, the word to rule means to lead, to be out front. It means to manage. It has authority implicit in the title. The reason I say that is because the same word is used in chapter 3, verse 4, when it says elders are to manage or deacons are to manage their household. It's the same word. They're to, you know, managing a household involves a degree of authority. And they are called to lead in, in overseeing ministries and facilities and finances, in the membership of the church, in the diet of the preaching. And these elders who are ruling in this way are to be honored if they're ruling well. Now, to honor, to rule well, would be to rule faithfully. Paul didn't expect that every time elders made decisions, everybody would fully agree and be on board. Uh, but are they being faithful? Are they tethering themselves to the word? Are they praying? Are they living godly lives? Are they serving? Are they sacrificing? Are they extending themselves for you? Are they overseeing things well? If they are ruling well, they're worthy of double honor. Uh, let me just be straight up with you in terms of our own elders, what they do. So you kind of have a, a look behind the curtain. 
Our elders and staff, they gather, uh, full-time staff gathers twice a month, first and third Thursday. The meetings, always hope for three hours, usually go four, maybe four and a half. That's twice a month. And in that, we're discussing the membership of the church, we're discussing upcoming events, we're discussing um, issues of, of ministry, issues of facilities, finance. They, uh, they are usually very busy on Sunday morning, either teaching a new members class, interviewing new members, meeting with people for prayer, meeting with deacons to discuss things that are upcoming, whether it's with the building or with the finance. Um, they're always, there's one elder present every Sunday morning when three families, so many of you may not know this, but every week three families from the church come to pray. Rick, the staff, and an elder is there to connect with the families and pray. And that's just during Sunday. Uh, during the week, they're still involved in Bible studies. They're leading care groups. They're involved in care groups. Uh, they're meeting with people. One elder just last week had four meetings. So, so you, get, you begin to get a weight of the amount of time and effort these elders are ruling. They're ruling well, diligently. And when they rule well, the church is called to honor, to esteem them. Again, there isn't always full agreement expected on everything related to the positions they take or, or how they advance ministries, but there is this idea of, of honor, esteem, respect. We see this in 1 Thessalonians. We ask you, brothers and sisters, to respect those who labor among you. The word labor, by the way, means toil to the point of exhaustion. Labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and esteem them very highly in love because of their work. He says something similar in Hebrews chapter 13. He says, obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be no advantage to you. So the esteem and the honor that you're to accord the eldership of the church, the leadership of the church, is because these men will have to stand before God on how they cared for, loved, and led you. That is a significant consideration that is on our minds and often regarding the responsibility we have. And so Paul's saying, esteem them, honor them. But not just honor them. There's also some that labor at preaching and teaching. That same labor, that point of exhaustion, uh, would be those who are to be compensated, to be paid. Now Paul, in his ministry, sometimes waived the right to receive help from the gospel ministry. Other times he received the help, like at the end of the book of Philippians. He received their help, and he said, I've received it in full. But I think Paul here is establishing a principle that churches that are gathering have a responsibility for those who are devoting their lives, who are dedicating themselves to the work of ministry, that they are to be cared for. And that's why he brings these two arguments to bear. An ox, don't muzzle the ox while it threshes or treads the grain. The picture here is being drawn out of Deuteronomy 25, uh, where you would see the ox kind of stamping with its hooves on the sheaves of wheat so that it separates the seeds from the straw. Now the pagans would muzzle the ox because they don't want the ox eating their food. But God in his kindness says, no, 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 let the ox feed. As it's preparing food for you, let him feed as well. And so he's drawing an analogy with those in full-time ministry that while they labor among you, make sure they're fed. But not just from Deuteronomy, notice he says the laborer deserves his wages. Interestingly, this comes from Luke chapter 10, verse 7. Jesus is sending out these missionaries on that first missionary endeavor. He says, take no purses with money in them. They will provide for you. You're laboring among them. And so he's saying, just consider yourself a farmer. You have a field. You, you have a day laborer. You send him out. He's working for your food, should he not be entitled to wages. So Paul's drawing these two examples to say this is why the church ought to compensate or care for those who are laboring among them. 
Now, uh, a couple things. Neither metaphor is very flattering to us, I don't think, being called an ox, perhaps, or a day laborer. But the point of it is that if they're laboring, uh, they ought to be entitled to it. But let me remind you that Paul here is drawing from the words of Jesus, taken verbatim out of Luke 10:7. It shows you how early in the church they began to see the New Testament as equivalent and on par with the Old Testament law of God. So you see how early they began to see the words of Jesus and the writings of the New Testament to be equal in authority and a completion of the revelation of God. So that's the first call, to honor the elders who rule. How do you do this? How do you honor the elders? Well, we've talked about compensation already. I know that's skittish for some of us because we have pastors that have their own jets and have very expensive tennis shoes, and so it's a little bit uncomfortable for us. Uh, but the reality is that this church does compensate us well, and, and I'm grateful for that. But other ways to honor, honor and to esteem the eldership of the church is to, uh, uh, to pray for us. That's part of our church covenant, to pray for our godliness, to pray for our perseverance, to pray for our wisdom. Another way would be to give words of encouragement. You know, Mark Twain said he could live a whole month on one encouragement, to encourage them in their work. Another way to discern your honor for them is how do you speak about them to other people? How do you speak of their work to others? That reveals to you the degree to which you find them honorable. Another way would be to listen with graciousness, to give the benefit of the doubt. I pray that I can always speak with a gracious way, and we also need to listen in a gracious way, assuming the best. Another way to honor the elders would be to manage expectations about how many can serve you in a time of difficulty or hardship. Sometimes I'll hear someone say, well, an elder didn't call me. And I'll say, but I called you. I mean, I'm a, as an elder. So what we do is we go around in our elder meetings. We covered the letter C last Saturday. So we start with a dear saint named Lisa, end it with a dear friend named Adam, and we covered all the families. How are they doing? How are they getting along? Uh, does someone need to reach out to them? Uh, yeah, I'll take them. Okay, you can take them. And so we're trying to divvy up and make sure. We have pushing 400 people, and even though we're layering more elders on, we cannot add enough elders to, to be able to touch every person by every elder, and so we're trying to divvy it up. That's the beauty of the plurality of eldership. Now, some people say, well, why don't we go back to when we had all of our membership under each individual elder. We're considering that, and that might be the thing to do. That way families know this is my elder. The problem that came up is sometimes when elders change or someone says, well, I don't want that elder, I want this elder, or this elder lives near me over here, and I'd rather talk to him. And, and so it was never without its snags, and so we thought the plurality would work. But to manage it means to recognize that um, there may be, and staff does most of this. Why? Because we're dedicated to it in terms of our time. You just heard the list of all that the elders do. It's hard then to always be able to be on point or the first one to call. So that's managers. You don't want to expect too much. Now, I don't want you to expect too little either. So for kind of full disclosure here, my grandson was eating lunch at our house after church, and he said, I came in from church, and he said, hey, Papa, why, why do you only work one day a week? <laughs> and so I, I quickly said, did your father tell you that? <laughs> Wanted to make sure. So we want to manage our expectations. We want to expect to be touched and loved, and yet at the same time, I don't want you to under, I don't want you to under expect our care for you. So that's honoring elders well. Now look with me at the next. It's how do we respond with protecting and perhaps when necessary correcting them. Look with me at 19 to 21. He says, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. 
Now, what's interesting here is you can hear Paul is instructing Timothy to be prepared. He said, you're going to face accusations. You're going to face criticisms. You're going to face frustrations. It's in the nature of the work that you will bear these things. In fact, John Calvin said it this way. He said, they may perform their duties correctly and conscientiously, yet they never escape a thousand criticisms. You're not doing it right this way or that way. And Paul's trying to warn Timothy that in pastoral ministry, you're going to have to embrace these things. He says, but don't take a single accusation against an elder. That there needs to be two or three witnesses. Now, this doesn't mean that the offended party is to collect friends, two or three of them, do you agree with this, and build a case. Paul is telling Timothy, you go investigate and discern the legitimacy of the accusation leveled. Why? Because a single accusation can crush a reputation and a ministry. And so he says, don't listen to a single accusation. Towner, New Testament scholar, writes, this is a protective device where there continues to be in the church strong-willed, self-seeking individuals who would use their influence and even underhanded means to shape others' opinions about one person or another. So he's saying, don't take the single accusation. Verify an, accusa an accusation to discern is it legitimate. Now, where it is legitimate, where an elder is in sin, then they are to be confronted. You see that here. Paul's not differing from Jesus in Matthew 18, where if an elder has sin, that he's to be confronted privately. If repentant, then the matter is resolved just as Jesus speaks about in 18. But if the elder persists in known sin, then he is to be rebuked in the presence of all. But, but let me remind you, persisting in sin, this is speaking of serious sin. This isn't a personality quirk. This isn't a mistake. This isn't a poorly timed comment. The context is Hymenaeus and Alexander were being handed over to Satan as elders. They were being pushed out because of their persistence in sin. So it was false teaching, and it was false living. So, so if the elder persists in sin, then he is to be rebuked in the presence of all, so that everybody is warned, and the church is reminded of the purity of God, if they persist in sin. Now, notice that he tells Timothy, he says, I charge you in the presence of God, and of Christ Jesus, and of the elect angels. I think what he's saying here is, this is a serious matter. Make sure you do this right. The elders are not to get a pass. You're not to turn a blind eye to their sin. That you are to bring judgment, just as it will be done on the day, without partiality. And at the same time, they're not to be, they're not to be given a blind eye, but they're also not to be held to this scrupulous level of life that perhaps no one else is. So it's that, it's that impartial judgment regarding sin. If it persists, make it clear. If it doesn't, then it's resolved. Now, think about this. This is protection for the church. It's protection for the church that there aren't two standards of judgment. It's also protection for the pastor or the elder to make sure that it's a legitimate accusation. Now, now, this is, in my mind, this is an encouraging word for us. You know, many of us think, you know, the church is often struggling with conflict. And if we just go back to the first century church, there we would see it in its purity. So it's like the philosophy of the Renaissance. The Renaissance was about going back to the originals. If we can just go back to the originals, then it will be all pure. But don't you see here that Paul's telling Timothy, you're going to get plastered with criticisms. You're going to get leveled with them. And just, just keep the line. Continue to walk out the call of God. That You're going to be hit with that. But, but, and you notice that each generation the church continues. Why? Because it's the power of the gospel. I mean, God has given to us a son. The son has come to dwell among us. He's taken on flesh. He's revealed the grace and the glory of God. He's reconciled us to God. He's reconciled us to each other. And, and that's what the church does, generation after generation. Even with broken elders and broken members, 
it keeps going on. God is doing a work, and he's going to do it through our brokenness. So the members are to honor the elders who rule well and to protect the reputation and, when necessary, correct. And then thirdly, the church is to respond by exercising caution in who is appointed as an elder. Look with me at 22 to 25. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are to be conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. So Paul's saying, don't be quick about putting your hands on people. What's this mean? Well, some people think it's kind of that high church experience, ordination, you, you lay hands on and, and you bless them for ministry. Others think it's restoring repentant sinners back into the church. My gut's simply this. He's telling Timothy, before you appoint somebody as an elder, don't be too quick. You know, before you appoint them to public service, don't be too quick to put your hands on them and appoint them. In other words, time is needed. You want to examine their life. You want to know who they are. You want to be aware of how they live their life. You know, we have the expression, time tells. Right? Time does reveal. Over the years, time will tell. The longer you know someone, the more you have an awareness of it's a genuine character or not. And so time tells. And what he's saying to Timothy, he's saying, Timothy, before you appoint any leaders, you've removed some leaders because of their false teaching and their false living, before you appoint them, make sure you know their life. Look at their personal life. Look at how their families are, are cared for. Look at the nature of their marriages. Look at their steadfast commitment. Look at their theology. Do they attend church regularly? Are they already eldering? And if they're already eldering, how is their eldering going? So look at these things. Take your time. Now you say, well, how long should we wait? Well, I'd say years. I'd say years. And the reason I say, you say, well, years, really? Yeah, I, I really mean that. Why? Well, because he says in verse 24, some sins are obvious, they're conspicuous. You can see him. Yeah, he's not ready for leadership. Uh, but others take time. Listen, folks, we're all like icebergs. You got 10% showing, there's a lot not showing, and it takes time to understand what's beneath the waterline. And so he's saying, just take your time. Not just, our, our, not just do sins operate that way, sometimes good works do too. Some people are very bold and announce their good works. Others are very serious about the good works, but they're humble, they don't talk about it. It takes time to see all the good eldering that they've done. So, so, so he's just saying, don't be too quick to lay on of hands. And this would also argue for elders, not that have to be over 60, but they should definitely be along in life that they have left awake, that we can see the fruit of their labor to assess, would they be good to appoint for leadership? And then notice why we want to wait. Paul talks, he says, keep yourselves pure, he says to Timothy. In other words, when you quickly appoint an elder that should not be an elder, you, Timothy, will bear partial responsibility. You will be stained. You know, that, that is your responsibility to make sure and put someone. Otherwise, you bear part of that moral responsibility for now putting an elder that shouldn't be an elder. Now you're wondering, yeah, but how does the wine fit in? <clears throat> Well, I, I do think Timothy was trying to keep himself pure. And many scholars think that Timothy was actually tempted by that false teaching that we read about in chapter 4. Those false teachers came in, the Hymenaeus and the Alexander, and they said, listen, now that we're spiritual beings, God's created order is degraded. Marriage, I wouldn't get married. Listen, it's more spiritual to be single than it is to be married. And, and don't drink wine. I wouldn't drink wine anymore to be spiritual, no alcohol. And you shouldn't eat these certain foods. You gotta, so so in, this false teaching was a degrading of the goodness of God's creation. And we say, no, get married. Enjoy a glass of wine. Enjoy food. These are good things from God to be currently enjoyed, even while we're being made into the image of God. And so Timothy was kind of tempted. So Paul's saying, keep yourselves pure. Don't be hasty about laying on of hands. And keep yourself poor, pure. You can have a little wine if you have stomach issues. 
Now, we don't know what his stomach issues were. It could have been the stress from the church. Do you realize that 42% of pastors in a uh, survey recently published in May of 22, 42% of pastors right now are considering stepping out of ministry. 42%. Now, they probably won't, but just assume for a minute that they all just did. Well, would that be incredible? 42%. The two key reasons, stress from the church, difficulty with this highly politicized, kind of this, this just divisive culture and people that we have. The other one is the loneliness. Sometimes it's hard. It's difficult for a pastor to navigate friendships as it isn't for other people who aren't in pastoral ministry. But he says, take a little wine for your stomach. It could have been some physiological issue that he had. He seemed to have other ailments. But wine was often seen as kind of a, a medicinal aid to indigestion and stomach issues. So he's saying, have a little wine. Keep yourself pure. Think about keeping your health up. I was instructed when I was reading through Calvin's commentaries about the common sense of John Calvin. Here's what he says about the pastor and his health. He says, every person should attend to their own health. That's a good word, right? But listen to what he says. It's so different than our culture. Every person should attend to their own health, not for the sake of prolonging life, but that as long as he lives, he may serve God and be of use to his neighbors. Have you ever thought about that, maintaining your health? We do it to avoid cancer, to have a long life, to have a quality of life. But he's saying, no, we maintain our health for the use of our neighbor. That's so otherworldly. But it goes right along with the two greatest commandments. Love the Lord your God. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's so refreshing to read things like this. So he's saying, don't be hasty. Timothy, keep yourself pure. Don't be hasty laying on of hands. So we're reminded to be patient, to be patient in appointing elders, to make sure that we take the time. Look at their personal lives. Uh, do they accord with the, uh, with the qualities given in 1 uh, Timothy chapter 3? Are they living above reproach? Or are there hidden sins? Are they still struggling with lust? Are they still struggling with pornography? Are they still struggling with anger or finances? If those are still there, then hesitate. Uh, look, at their, look at their spiritual life. Are they mature? Have they gone through suffering? And have they gone through deep suffering and stayed faithful? That's incredibly important. Do they have doctrinal clarity? Do they understand doctrine? You know, it's one thing to be a member and friends with other members who are different theologically. But in terms of leadership, there needs to be more of a doctrinal unity. Not uniformity, but a doctrinal unity. By that I mean that there needs to be more in agreement than not. Otherwise, you're getting caught up in theological debates rather than caring for the needs of the church. Remember, we feel that elders are chosen by God and identified by the church. All right, so in Acts 20, 28, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God. So God appoints, we identify, we confirm. And then I would also say that we want to be patient regarding appointing leaders just to make sure that they have that they want to do the work, that they're able to do the work, that the demands of ministry are significant. Particularly, you'd be surprised, but just the concern for the church, just the prayer and the burden of the church. That's, that's not saying you're a burden. Our burden is that you are prepared with excellence to stand before God in a way that you'll be happy. We were your leaders. And we are burdened to do it right because we know that when the chief shepherd appears, that's our moment in the sun. You know, when Paul the Apostle speaks about the burdens of ministries, he says it this way, and I think he's got a, a report card that none of us have gone through, but it gives us a picture. He says, I've endured far greater labors, far more imprisonments. He's talking about these false apostles that had come into the Corinthian church and kind of said, Paul, he's not much of a speaker. He's not much of a leader. You can discount his teaching. So Paul holds up his apostleship by virtue of how he has suffered. 
So we always say, well, if you're suffering, you're out of God's will. And yet Paul establishes his apostleship by his suffering. He says, I've endured far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. So five different times he was put on a post and they whipped his back 39 times. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. I mean, what a laundry list of suffering declaring the worth of God by his willingness to endure that for what? He says it in the next line. And apart from that, apart from these things, there is the daily pressure on me of my, of my anxiety for all the churches. He was burdened for the church to grow and to be strong. That's what you want your leaders to We want to be burdened for you that you will be readied, prepared, growing in the grace and knowledge. That some of you would be coming to faith in Christ, then be growing in the faith in Christ. This is the heart of an elder who's seeking to rule well. Not rule perfectly, not rule in a way that you will agree with every single thing, but they're ruling with faithfulness and diligence. And this is what I'd ask you to pray for us. So let's take a minute and just silently ask God to give us grace that we might walk in a right manner, that we might display to the world this right relationship between membership and eldership. And I will pray for us in just a moment.